Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. And we're in part three of our series, which we have titled simply How to Grow Spiritually. So in this series, as the title suggests, we're just looking at what it means to grow spiritually. And we're looking at it in the context of the calling and appointing of the first disciples. You know, those famous scenes where the disciples drop their fishing nets and leave their boats and leave their fathers and they follow Jesus. That moment where Jesus is up on the mountaintop and he calls his disciples to him and he appoints 12 to be apostles. What can we learn from these very early moments about spiritual growth? We might think that Jesus hasn't really taught them anything yet. Surely we have to wait for the three years of Jesus' ministry to unfold, hear the Sermon on the Mount, listen to the parables, watch the miracles. Then we can find out what Jesus thought about spiritual growth. But what I've been claiming in this series is that even in these very brief first encounters with Jesus, the way in which Jesus calls and then appoints his disciples already provides insights into the way Jesus viewed spiritual growth. So let's just recap quickly where we've been so far. Let's look back once again to Jesus' invitation, come follow me. In week one, we considered the honor of this invitation, given that these disciples were fishermen and tax collectors and doing other things. What that meant is that they had not been selected by the rabbis. Their education was over. They, they were not the best of the best. They hadn't made the cut. And if you remember, we said it was like Oxford or the Ivy League coming to someone who dropped out of high school and saying, hey, will you come and be with us? No wonder they dropped everything and followed Jesus. There's tremendous grace in this invitation because it is unearned. It's unmerited. It's undeserved, but the invitation is there for the disciples, for the prostitute, for the centurion, for the tax collector, for you and for me. Come follow me. And with those words, Jesus sets up this framework of grace in which all of our spiritual growth takes place. In week two, we really focus on the idea of how knowledge is an essential part of spiritual growth, but it's not knowledge in the sense of information download into our brains. This kind of knowledge is not something that I can simply think and reason my way to. They had a saying about rabbis and their disciples, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi's feet. What does that mean? Well, if we follow behind Jesus that closely, you'll get to know his patterns of thinking. You'll become familiar with his framing of life and events so that you see what he sees and you hear what he hears so that you will not only do what he does, but you'll know exactly why he does what he does. You'll learn to treat people the way he treats people. You'll learn to love what he loves. You'll come to value what he values. In other words, you'll internalize a whole entire way of being. There's, of course, a lot to be said about Jesus' way of being and moving in the world. But again, so much of that is encapsulated even in this invitation that Jesus extends to his disciples. 
Okay, that's where we've been so far. If someone came to you and said, come follow me, let's just think about that invitation again. Someone came to you and said, come follow me. Even if you knew them really, really well and you trusted that person more than anyone else in the world, just out of sheer curiosity, you're still going to ask the question, where to? Not because you didn't know them or because you didn't trust them, but because, well, you just want to know. It's just natural, isn't it? We, we would all be curious enough to ask the question, where to? As many of you know, I have a terrible sense of direction. And so whenever we are in, 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 new, in a new place, in a new city, I tend to just follow Julia, who seems to have her own sort of internal guidance system, which often works uh, better than a GPS. But, but, but even though I, I don't know how to get to where we're going, I do know where we're going. I mean, I don't know the way, but I still know what our final destination is. I know where we're trying to end up. When Jesus invites his disciples to follow him, it's not a generic follow me. Come follow me. Where to? Oh, I don't know. Wherever the wind takes us. Jesus didn't say, come follow me and we will wander aimlessly together. Come follow me and we'll follow the road wherever it goes. Jesus has a destination in mind. He's inviting them to follow him somewhere. And Jesus doesn't conceal from his disciples their final destination. He doesn't say, look, just trust me, you'll, you'll see eventually. Jesus tells them exactly where he wants to lead them. He knows and satisfies their natural human curiosity. Now, when Jesus says, come follow me, there are any number of ways that Jesus could have finished that sentence. Come follow me and I will make you into good and a better kind of people. Come follow me and I will make you wise. We could have said, come follow me and I will make you spiritually mature. Jesus could have ended that sentence in any number of ways. But Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, or come follow me, and I will teach you to fish for people. This is Christ's goal, to turn us into fishers of other people. Let's just say for now that this is Jesus' definition of spiritual maturity. This is Jesus' goal of spiritual maturity. This is the destination that we're heading out to when we follow him. But not only is this Christ's goal for his disciples, his goal for their spiritual growth, but it's also his method for spiritual growth. In a way, the goal is at the same time the method, or the method is the same as the goal. Well, you'll see what I mean in a moment. To help explore this further, let's take a moment to contrast Jesus' maxim, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. With the popular mantra in the contemporary Western world, certainly a rule for life in the contemporary English-speaking world, which is, well, as long as I don't hurt anyone. How often have we heard this said and probably said it ourselves at different times? As long as I'm not hurting anyone, it's at least one of our highest values. It's really the only proper way to live. 
and it encourages us to see ourselves, our lives, uh, as sort of disconnected, atomized individuals. Some philosophers have suggested that modern Western culture is not really a culture. Oh, we have civilization in the sense that we have plumbers and police, but we don't have culture. Culture implies a collective myth that gathers up the arts, which then gathers up the people, and then gathered together by a shared story, we then have this sense of responsibility to each other and for each other. And not even just to us who are alive here and now, but to our ancestors and also to future generations. But our mantra, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, that's not a collective myth which gathers up and binds our life together. It's the opposite of that. It's really a thinly disguised way of unburdening myself of any responsibility for the rest of humankind. I'll stay out of your way and you stay out of mine is really another way of saying it. This is why I say that this maxim, one of our highest cultural values in the Western English speaking world, actually shrinks our world to the point that if we keep on saying it, we will soon find other people actually getting in the way, maybe a colleague, maybe a friend, maybe a husband or a wife. And at that point, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, will quickly turn into me actually hurting someone. Now listen again to Jesus' invitation. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' definition of spiritual maturity it turns us outward immediately to have a concern for the world around us. Let's consider how Jesus appoints his disciples and appoints them as apostles. Again, it's a very short story, but telling when it comes to understanding Jesus' definition and method of, for spiritual maturity. At that time, Jesus went to a mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. When it was day, he called his disciples. He chose 12 of them and called them apostles. They were Simon, whom Jesus named Peter, and Simon's brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. First of all, we notice that Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. He's away for the whole night. Well, this is an obvious symbolic reference to Moses, who went up Mount Sinai. And then he calls the 12 disciples. He appoints the 12, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. But you know, at this point, the 12 tribes of Israel had all but disappeared. That They'd vanished with the Assyrian invasion and deportation. The exile had seen to that. But here, as Jesus appoints the 12, that part of their ancient story reappears. 
the very act of calling his first disciples, in the very act of appointing the 12, Jesus is actually refounding the Jewish story. The story which tells us that in times past, when the 12 tribes of Israel had wandered in the desert with Moses, they constructed the tabernacle, an event which gathered up the arts, which gathered up the people. In Exodus 35, we read this. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought in offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for all the sacred garments, all who were willing, men and women alike. See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahismach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Jesus was refounding that story, which had once gathered up the arts, which had gathered up the people. And then later on in Jesus' ministry, we read, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him. Here is perhaps a royal reference. Peter, James, and John form an inner circle. It's been suggested these are echoes of David's inner circle of the three mighty men. So look at what Jesus is doing. At a point when Israel faced yet another crisis of existence, their survival as a people was uncertain. Would they be deported, sent off into yet another exile? Will the temple be demolished? Will Jerusalem be razed to the ground? Will they be scattered to the wind by imperial Rome? These are the questions at the forefront of a brutalized, oppressed people. And then Jesus appears gathering the people up into this old story. Moses, Mount Sinai, the 12 tribes, King David. Here is Israel's story being told once again. But it's a fresh telling of the story that will still have the power to gather up the arts, that will gather up the people for generations to come. Remember last year when I spoke in front of Durham Cathedral on our, on our church anniversary? Well, this is just one example of the story propelled by Jesus into the future, which has been gathering up the arts, which has gathered up the people for generations. Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's this, this immediate outward focus. Look, this is the opposite of the anemic. Well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. You know, I used to think that that was a sort of a, an innocent enough phrase, a good rule for life, really. But recently, I've come to the conclusion that spoken in our context, that old maxim is actually far nastier than I ever realized. It's a phrase which, a phrase which said often enough will isolate us from each other 
and repeated into our disparate and already scattered lives, it is the power to render life without meaning and without purpose. Look, say it 10 times slowly and you'll feel it happening. The lifeblood draining out of you. But when Jesus gathers his disciples up with this story, it's the opposite of, well, you stay out of my way and I'll stay out of yours. It's the opposite of, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Imagine it. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. He goes up on the mountain, he appoints the 12 and suddenly and unexpectedly, they find themselves drawn into the heart of Israel's story. And Israel's story moves in all directions. They find themselves answering to the story of Israel's ancient past, answering to that story to the past with their own lives. While at the same time, they're made responsible for moving the story forward into Israel's future. And at the same time, charged with the task of inviting their contemporaries all around them, the world around them, into the story of God. Prostitutes and tax collectors, fishermen and people who didn't quite make the cut, existing under the oppression and brutality of Roman occupation. And Jesus says, this is your story now. You own it. And they will become monumental figures, part of a monumental history that will change the course of humanity. When I think of the Jesus followers who have inspired me the most today, people who have been an example in so many ways of, of what it means to grow spiritually, what spiritual maturity might look like, how we might spiritually grow. I think of people like our friend Sasa, for example, who feels the weight of responsibility for the welfare, not only of his village or of his tribe, but of the nation of Myanmar. I think of our friend Celestin, who feels the weight of responsibility, not only for his own happy life or his own family or tribe and nation, but for eight African nations in which his organization Alarm, which he founded, is, is working to prevent genocide and to bring about reconciliation. Sasa grew up as a jungle boy in Myanmar. Celestin was a homeless, starving boy in Rwanda but they understood the scale of responsibility that Jesus was calling them to. And they've become monumental figures in their own right, in our midst, and are becoming part of monumental history that is steering the course of countless lives. Jesus' idea of spiritual growth aims at turning his disciples into people who will recognize and take on that kind of responsibility with their lives. Come follow me and I will make you into fishers of other people. But how does Jesus grow his disciples into those kinds of people? Well, the first thing he does right from the beginning, before he teaches and preaches the Sermon on the Mount, before he performs any miracles, before he utters a single parable, he draws them into this story and says, from now on, you are responsible for this.